Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, December 10th, 2017. My name is Leah M., and I'm your moderator this morning. The share IDs for Friday, December 8th, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 10768. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 10771. This morning, A Vision for You presents Living a Prayed and Measured Life. The 12 steps are a group of principles, spiritual in their nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to compulsively overeat and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. The 12 steps are designed to bring about a spiritual awakening, For the spiritual awakening to occur, the 12 steps are worked in the prescribed order, one step at a time, beginning with the first step. Each step flows logically from the one before it and builds upon its principles. Our spiritual awakening allows us to receive strength, inspiration, and direction from our higher power. The implementation of the steps and their spiritual disciplines enable us to develop a direct connection to the power which is greater than we are. We are trying to learn to act intuitively, to live according to the dictates and the disciplines of our higher power. Here to speak today is Gina R., a recovered compulsive overeater from Arizona. Gina is dedicated to the 12-step path and to living a life of purpose and fulfillment. Welcome to you, Gina. Thank you, Leah, for the invitation to offer my experience, strength, and hope. I'd like to also thank everyone who is on the line live right now and to acknowledge those who are listening to the recording Special editions have been a lifeline for me, and I'm so grateful for the wisdom and work put forth to make these available to us. My name is Gina R., and I am recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body living in Green Valley, Arizona. To get started, I'd like to take a moment of silence to remember those who are still sick and suffering inside and outside of these rooms and then to offer a connection prayer that I was that was passed to me through my sponsor lineage and is instrumental in my recovery. Breathe in the light of God. Breathe out the darkness of self. Breathe in all that is good. Love Pure. Breathe out all that is not good. Love. Pure. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. And wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done. Amen. I wanted to give a bit of insight on how the title of this talk came to be. As I was guided by my sponsor to consider and adopt a way of life to weigh and measure my food, I was gifted with the blessing of seeing how my ability to weigh and measure 
any aspect of my life was simply not properly developed. Perception and proportion have always been off for me. My response to life was measured by complete nothingness or absolute catastrophe. It was through submitting to the discipline of working the steps and of learning how to weigh and measure my food that a miracle bloomed. And I was able through prayer to weigh and measure my thoughts, emotions, actions, and to give God and to have God give me what I call a right-sized life, hence the title God gave me for this presentation, Living a Prayed and Measured Life. I'm going to measure my life into sections for you, 0 to 12 years, 12 to 23, 23 to 46, 46 to 55, and then 55 years to present. I am currently 56 years old. My experience of laying down my alcoholic foods in lieu of ingesting foods that are nourishing and healing and submitting myself to the 12-step process outlined in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous has rewired my brain, nervous system, and spirit and heart to fully receive and connect to my higher power who has always been there for me. You see, I was originally designed with my benevolent creator's imprint in mind that I would be a wanted, safe, secure, and cherished child who was loved and who could extend love without condition. For reasons only God knows, my operating system and circuitry failed. This coupled with the inability and ignorance of those around me to extend something they didn't have, as well as my own behaviors, kept me from being able to make, maintain, and operate from this connection with integrity. Instead, aspects of this disease took hold and grew. So here's what it was like ages zero to 12. Alcoholism was rampant. I was conceived and born under a spirit of confusion, dire brokenness, abuse, rejection, and fear. I was child number four of five sisters, with child number three dying a premature death at two days of age. She was what was then called a blue baby. My mother, sisters, and I all experienced abuse by my father, verbal, physical, emotional, and sexual. Had this situation occurred in today's social and legal, envir social and legal environment, he would have gone to prison. I was born with a ventricular septal defect, a literal hole in my heart. Hence the term dire brokenness. There were many fights between my parents over this as it created a financial strain. And there was a huge cloud over me every year as I was told that once I reached age 12, I would have to have open heart surgery. The uncertainty was unbearable for all. However, at age eight, I was told that the defect had repaired itself and I would need no further treatment. My two elder sisters basically raised me as my parents were consumed with a family photography business. So I didn't have a consistent nurturing connection with either of my parents. I was baptized in the Christian faith as an infant, but do not remember my parents going to church. Rather, I was dropped off for Sunday school at a Methodist church. Because of this uncertainty and inconsistency, 
I don't remember having formed strong notions about God or a higher power at a young age. What I do remember is having fantasies and many dreams that something or someone would take me away. I think these were my first real prayers. I have one memory that stands out, and I count it as a signal, spiritual experience. Back in the 60s, it was common lore in my hometown in southern Colorado that there were UFOs. I remember standing at my second-story bedroom window and seeing a very bright light that hovered outside. I felt safe, and it was inviting. And all I could think of was, how do I get to that light, and will it please come and get me? This was a form of prayer, even though I was not addressing an entity directly. At some level, I knew there was a power greater than me that could help me. I was not taken away that night, but I do believe that it was what I know now is called prevenient grace. God was working in my life in a way that I couldn't recognize until much later. During this age band, I harbored a sense of not belonging and being different. I'm the only blonde-haired, blue-eyed person in my family, and I was teased that I was adopted. It wasn't until I was in my 30s that my mother told me about difficult marital issues around my conception. But she assured me that I was the product of her and my father. She also admitted that had the laws been different, there was a very good chance I would not have been born. This feeling of not belonging and being rejected lingered for decades. The memories I do have are around traumatic events, not much fun or good stuff. So my start in life was rocky, and my instinct was to find things to console me. I began this with fervor at age two, when I would steal my little sister's baby bottles. They contained sweetened condensed milk essentially sugar goo thinned with water. I would drink them dry. My other consoling behavior was creating lies and stories about the family and life I wished I had, not the one I was experiencing. I stole from stores and money from people so I could get candy as a very young child, around age six or seven. I have no idea how I knew to do that. I did find great consolation very early in food when I was at other people's homes. I didn't want to be at my home and look for ways to get out. There I would find PBJs, bologna sandwiches, chips, soda pop, cookies, cake, candy, cereal, milk. These always brought comfort. I do not have memories of eating together as a family during this age span. So I asked my sister to tell me who did the shopping, who cooked, and did we eat together as a family? And this was part of my process working with my sponsor to figure out my food history. It was basically a catch-as-catch-can situation. While there were some sit-down meals, there was typically some trauma going on around it. This helped me understand how some of my food behaviors were rooted and formed. For example, eating on the run, not being present with the food, stealing food, hiding food, gorging, etc. This was a time where I realized I had a gift in intellect and street smarts, and I figured out that I could manipulate people. 
I was referred to as a know-it-all because I just seemed to know stuff that others didn't. I used this to stay a few steps ahead of the people in my life who caused me pain. I learned not to acknowledge or express emotion as I heard, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. And then I would get hit. So I anticipated what I needed to do to stay off the radar and got the sense that I could control situations, people, places, and things. It worked, sort of. A few specific memories I recall include going to different friends' homes for special occasions and eating. I would find ways to be alone with the food or I would steal it and take it with me for later. I remember one Christmas, my father ordered from Omaha Steaks. I fantasized about that styrofoam container for years. I remember having a recurring dream of being able to fly and get into the refrigerator and kitchen cabinets and eat whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. I also have some vague memories about eating at school. One is I can remember the rolls and butter that were served. I would take the pat of butter, fold the corners on it, and melt it atop of whatever was hot. Once melted, I would poke a hole in the roll, pour the butter in there, and eat it. I don't recall eating anything else, but I do remember the feeling I got from eating that roll and melted butter. So here's what it was like ages 12 to 23. My parents divorced around age 12, and to the stunned amazement of everyone, the court gave custody of me and my younger sister to my father who had abused us. They had required us to see a psychiatrist, and I had one visit, and it, during that visit, he told me I was fine, and I would be fine, and it was based on his assessment that this custody decision was made. That lasted one year, and during that time, he did have us in a Presbyterian church, and I went through the confirmation process. Here I was exposed to the scriptures and the Bible and learning other prayers. I remember learning how to cook and was responsible for making simple meals for the three of us. My coping and compensating behaviors with food and stealing continued. Eventually, my mom obtained sole custody of my sister and me, and we went to live with her and her new husband, and he eventually adopted us. The situation was more normal, but still dysfunctional on many levels, as no one really knew how to communicate or express feelings appropriately. But there was not the overt abuse we had all experienced before. I was actually upset with the situation and didn't want to leave my biological father as I had been completely brainwashed and manipulated by him. And my stepdad was Jewish, and I didn't understand him. But since there was no temple or synagogue in our town, he didn't formally practice his faith. And we didn't go to a Christian church either. So I was basically a free-range teenager with not a lot of direction. Because of the guilt my mother felt and her inability to discipline appropriately, I got into a lot of things I shouldn't have with no real consequences. We did, however, observe the high holy days and other celebrations in both of the traditions, and I learned some Jewish prayers and a bit of Yiddish. I also observed a nightly ritual of my stepdad. He would have one drink and one pill at dinner. I observed the effect it had on him, and I followed suit 
and picked up alcohol at age 13 to escape and also to get the effect of performance, ease, and comfort. It took food's place till age 23 when I got sober and haven't had alcohol since. My mom was a foodie, and I have strong impressions of her always struggling with her weight. She had lots of cookbooks and took cooking classes. I learned a lot from her, both healthy and disease behaviors. Around age 15, I noticed my body and felt fat, even though I wasn't. This was the beginning of what, I, of what I've been told is body dysmorphia. No matter my actual size, I always saw it differently. And it makes me think of what Dr. Silkworth said in his opinion, where he introduced the idea that alcoholics cannot differentiate the true from the false. This was certainly manifesting for me in several ways at a young age. I remember certain kids and thought they were fat and it disgusted me. I didn't wanna be that way. I watched my mom diet and take amphetamines and thought she was fat, but she wasn't. My parents had lots of bridge parties and I loved cleaning up so I could finish leftover food and drinks. Once I could drive and work, I began to seek food in restaurants and my cravings and behaviors to get certain types of foods became more pronounced. I had lots of binges through middle and high school, many resulting in blackouts, but somehow ended up on the National Honor Society, but with no real direction on how to use my natural intellect. I was fortunate to be able to enroll in college. However, instead of academics, the cafeteria and drinking were my focus. Despite that, I kept it together enough to keep it going and eventually graduate. Here's what it was like ages 23 to 46. At age 23, I got married, gave birth to my daughter, got sober, was introduced to the 12 steps. I attended face-to-face -face AA and ACA meetings for five years. And I now refer to my program at that time as off the wall recovery because I don't recall studying the big book. I remember reading how it works in the group from the book and then the steps and traditions off posters on the wall. One suggestion I heard and followed was take what you like and leave the rest. What I left was basically steps 10 and 12. I did not do these as they are prescribed. While nursing my daughter, I developed a night eating habit that persisted until May of 2016, over three decades. It took me five years to graduate from college, and I did it, but I have very weak memories of my experience because of food fogs. After I graduated, we moved to Wyoming, and I stopped going to 12-step meetings. And be, simply because they didn't have non-smoking meetings, I refused to be in a room where there was smoke. My work and career life did not follow what I went to school for. I ended up on a path of mostly aimless and undisciplined directions. Despite this, others recognized my skills and abilities, and I ended up in positions of increasing responsibility doing work as a university administrator. It was mostly satisfying, but not my passion. I got very involved with church and family activities and was that person who was sought after to run committees and get stuff done. Life was mostly good, but something was off and I couldn't figure it out. I felt driven and could not get enough of anything. I didn't realize my ism, I see me, disease was continuing to operate and grow. 
At age 28, I ordered a pay-and-weigh diet program where awful freeze-dried food was sent to me in the mail. I weighed 135 pounds and was 5 feet 5 inches tall. I didn't need it, but my mind told me different. That began my journey with various pay-and-weigh diet programs and obsession with food and nutrition for the next 30 years. My main alcoholic foods were milk. I would guzzle it like beer standing at the refrigerator. It was nothing for me to drink a half a gallon in one standing. Cereal, cookies, cakes, candy, bread, processed wheat. When I ate them, I could not get enough or stop, even when on the diet. The mental obsession to get these foods was overpowering. I can remember several blackout situations in my car that involved getting and using food. I ate at night after everyone went to bed so I could be with the food by myself. This resulted in the withholding of affection from my husband and daughter. During this time frame, my work and career were actually going pretty well. Somehow, I was able to conceive, initiate, and complete things, and enjoyed nice platitudes. I had an attitude that I could do anything. I seemed fearless. I know now, having worked the fourth step, this was my ego being overinflated, and it was simply a compensating behavior to keep my real feelings of inferiority at bay. At age 35, I was recruited to be a law school administrator, and I moved, with my, moved my family from Wyoming to Oklahoma. I was sought after. I had arrived, just like Bill W. wrote in his story. My weight at this time was around 140 pounds. Working in a law school environment was challenging and difficult, as there are numerous and varying types of individuals with high degrees of ego. It was actually a pretty good spot for me, as I seemed to fit in. Part of me really liked it, but it eventually devolved after about 15 years. As my ism disease went untreated and my food obsession and weight increased. This is where I used food as a performance drug. In addition to being addicted to food and its effects, I was also addicted to work and the effect I perceived it had on me. Food not only fueled what I did to perform in my job, it anesthetized me to my feelings and emotions that came from it. It was a sick cycle. Just as I learned as a child to keep a few steps ahead, I did the same thing in my job. I was successful in accomplishing things because of the positive aspects of my character defects surfacing, but it eventually became my undoing. My ability and or perception of being able to control and manipulate people, places, and things was unraveling. Just as it states on page 62 in the chapter on how it works, selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles, driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. We step on the toes of our fellows, and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some point in the past, we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. The earlier sense that I was fearless began to change and shifted to my being consumed by fear. 
just as it's described on page 151 in the Vision for You chapter. Awakening to face the hideous four horsemen. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. All of these years, I was an active member of my faith community and seeking spiritual experiences. I led Bible studies, had a long-standing practice using contemplative centering and intercessory prayer. I was a leader in a spiritual retreat movement. I became a certified spiritual director trained to lead people in their walk with their higher power, and people overall respected me. But deep down, I felt a fraud and unworthy of what was happening and was controlled by a spirit of comparison, even as my ego continued to be massaged. None of it could keep me from eating. I had to eat to keep from being eaten alive by the restlessness, irritability, and discontentment that I suffered. Here's an example. When at a church event that involved food, and most of them did, I was not able to focus on the program, fellowship, or God's presence. My attention was on what food was there, conniving how I could get what I wanted, and watching everyone to see what they took, and then being consumed with a spirit of comparison that would tell me things like, how come they are eating only that? How can she eat that dessert and be skinny? I know that person is on a diet. Why are they eating that way? Or I'll volunteer to do cleanup so I could get leftovers. I felt completely lost and trapped with nowhere to turn because I was where people went to get help. The church. At age 45, I did have a period of spiritual clarity, but not necessarily the freedom I now have. I was doing a diet that references a beach in the South. I also committed to a year-long spiritual exercise course that required me to read, study, and sit still and meditate for an hour a day, and then meet with a group weekly. Because my diet was mostly clean, I was able to hear messaging from my higher power and for the most part act upon it. But in the end, as with all the other diets and spiritual exercises I had undertaken, I would go back to eating the way I had before. And the disease would kick in, and before I knew it, I had gained all the weight plus more. And even more troubling, the inability to hear my higher power or to feel comfortable inside my own skin was growing. But I believe that nothing is wasted in God's economy. And because of that experience, I learned how to slow down, sit still, and connect with my higher power. And this would prove necessary in the next experience. At age 46 in 2006, I got a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm what is called a triple negative. My treatment took nearly a year and resulted in surgery, chemotherapy, and brachytherapy radiation which I call shishkaboob. I recovered with no evidence of the disease, thank you God, but my disease was still in full force. As my initial reaction when told I would have to have chemotherapy was that I would finally be able to lose weight. That is where my mind went. I was excited to have chemotherapy so I could lose weight. I was stunned when my oncologist told me that the regimen prescribed for me would be such that I would have to have massive steroid treatments and I would gain weight. 
My weight at the time of diagnosis was 160 pounds. I was told to get sugar and processed carbs out of my diet. I tried, but could not do it. I rationalized that the steroids would cause the weight gain, so I may as well go ahead and eat whatever I wanted. And didn't I deserve it as I was having to go through such an ordeal? This makes me think of the part, and there is a solution on page 21 where it describes, moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely if they have good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. I was staring down cancer, was told not to eat sugar and processed carbs, but I could not do it. I am not a moderate eater. By the end of the treatment, which lasted nearly one year, I was just under 200 pounds, full of fear and unable to manage my emotions or relate in an effective way with people, especially in my work environment. This takes me to ages 46 to 55. I completely underestimated the effect going through the cancer treatment would have on me. I had always been able to use food to help me rally to any cause, but it simply wasn't working anymore. I was not emotionally fit and was having difficulty with many relationships, personal and professional. Isolation also became an issue, even though I had hordes of people supporting me. I was scared to be in public due to risk of infection because of my immune system being compromised. And so I stopped going to church and disconnected with many of the friends I had made over the years. I lost the connection to which I had become accustomed to God, despite two decades of devotion to my faith and a large community of support. The next few years were a combination of chemotherapy brain fog and my self-induced food fogs. I was not doing anything well at all. Several situations came to a head in my work environment and I experienced a collapse in 2011. I attributed it to the effect that chemo had on me. It had wiped out my hormone production and adversely affected my brain and my body's ability to manage stress. So I just continued to self-medicate with food and still didn't follow the advice I received. I was prescribed antidepressants and received psychotherapy, but they didn't work and my eating increased. And I should mention that during these years, I was constantly reading about or listening to podcasts about nutrition in addition to the diet. I now call that food porn. I would go to sleep with a pile of books and magazines about food, diets, or nutrition. If I didn't literally eat my way to sleep, I would immerse myself in the information and gorge that way. The amount of time I spent on this kind of study could qualify me for a degree or certification, I'm sure. I could tell anyone what they needed to do to clean up their diet or lose weight or to discuss the latest research, but I could not do it for myself. My mind convinced me that simply hearing about and knowing these things made them true for me. I would learn later that self-knowledge avails us nothing. I had no conception that I would have to engage in certain consistent actions and behaviors to affect a lasting change. During the last six months of 2010, my basic diet consisted of Lucky Charm cereal and milk for each meal, and then microwave popcorn in the evening. I supplemented this meal plan by eating in restaurants or stopping at a drugstore to buy candy, usually caramel and I would eat them like a ravaged animal in my car. I tried 
to use my previously gained spiritual knowledge and experiences to get relief, and I couldn't do it. I cried out to God to help me. I asked to be made sick by the food. That prayer was answered, and I did become sick, but it didn't deter my behavior. I ate anyway. The terror I felt every morning and night was relentless, and I eventually became unable to go to work as I was terrified of the situations that were manifesting for real and in my perceptions. I felt like my life had no meaning, and I did not want to keep going, but didn't have the courage to take that action. Rather, I mustered one last rally. The solution was to leave my job and move back to my home state of Colorado. My husband's employer had a transfer opportunity, and we took it. While I felt relief for this change as I would be removed from a toxic work situation, there were still many issues that I was not able to resolve or find peace with, and I felt quite emotionally unstable. I confided to one of my law school colleagues about my situation. She knew about my previous AA experience and asked if I had been to a meeting. Her question stunned me. I had completely forgotten about the solution that I had learned about at the age of 23 when I put down alcohol. That's how far the disease had taken me with the food. But I still had no idea that the food was blocking me. With it two weeks remaining before relocating Colorado, I went to an AA meeting and found a woman who agreed to do a crash fourth and fifth step with me. That was my solution. Just bypass steps one, two, and three and get moving. She helped me see that if I'm not the problem, there is no solution, meaning I had gotten the ball rolling on most of my problems. She reviewed my church and prayer history and discerned my prayer life was focused on my wish list. I was completely self-absorbed. She reminded me of what it says in, the step, in step 11, to pray only for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out. And she suggested I use a serenity prayer toward that end. I found relief in the simplicity of the suggestion. I felt quite a bit of embarrassment and shame knowing that I had thrown away the solution for over two decades. I came face to face with my disease in a new way. Shortly after arriving in Colorado in October 2011, I was introduced by a mutual AA fellow to a new friend who was to become my Ebby Thatcher for OA. Despite anchoring myself in AA, I still had an underlying, underlying buzz of discontent. One fateful day, my Ebby and I were hiking, and she mentioned that she was in OA and shared some of her story. The light began to turn on for me. The things she said about food and her behavior sounded a lot like me. I agreed to go to an OA meeting. Because I was familiar with AA, I knew the drill for the first part of the meeting, but was thrown off when they said I could not mention names of foods during the meeting. This perplexed me as I was told that it could trigger someone. I knew on some level that the principle of neutrality most likely would apply to food. I couldn't fathom being in an AA meeting and somebody saying, I drank a light amber bubbly beverage last night and relapsed when referring to beer. My bullcrap meter was going off and I really didn't want to be there, but I did what was suggested and attended six meetings in two different locations and times 
to get the feel of it. My feeling didn't change. I didn't see recovery present in the people there. And I didn't need to be in a pack of unrecovered crazy people. I could do that on my own as I had perfected that over the last two decades. So I didn't attend anymore. But I began to go to Al-Anon because that's what my Ebby was doing. I later learned that Al-Anon is sometimes referred to as OA's waiting room. Over the next three years, my personal and professional situation changed, and I began to work again. And my husband quit working to take care of his mother, who moved in with us after her husband died. It was a very stressful time. My emotional health, while better than it had been before moving back to Colorado, was still not good, and these situations didn't make it better. I put enormous, enormous pressure on myself to learn a new skill set and to become licensed in a new industry and to start my own business, which I had never done before. While I seemed well-suited to many aspects of it, I did not fully understand the commitment required to be successful, and I allowed it to completely absorb all of me. My workaholism was alive and well, and so was my food addiction. Food as a performance drug and anesthesia to the pain I was causing was in full swing again, and my ability to handle life was continuing to decline. Despite faithful attendance at AA and Al-Anon meetings, I was lying to myself saying things were okay. The only thing I could think about in these meetings was how quick would it be over so I could head to a drive through for a fix. That was my solution. I continued to pray for God's will and the power to carry that out through the serenity prayer, however. One day while listening back for God's voice, I heard the words, you're having false moods. It was weird. I sat with that for about two weeks and nothing else happened. So I did what any good control freak does and I Googled the term false moods. I discovered a resource that helped me understand brain chemistry and non-functioning neurotransmitters and how to heal using amino acid therapy, things you can get in a natural food store. I followed the protocol and got some noticeable relief, but not 100%. The therapy indicated that the underlying diet was key, but I just ignored that and used the supplements and kept eating my alcoholic foods. Then one day I was rear-ended in an automobile accident I didn't think it was a big deal and didn't get medical attention. But after three weeks, I noticed my fear was stronger than before the supplement protocol. Excuse me. I was afraid to drive, which had never happened. Through the serenity prayer, I got some courage and mentioned this to a closed-mouth AA friend, and she connected me with a therapist who dealt with people who had traumatic experiences. I saw her for three sessions, and she said that whatever was going on with me was at a more physical, neurological level, and that I should see another professional. I went to the person she suggested, and he examined me and said I did have some brain trauma, that he could help me. But for the treatments to hold, I would need to get rid of the inflammation in my body. I countered self-righteously, inflammation? I don't have inflammation. He gently smiled and moved his hands around the silhouette of my body and said, yes, you do. It's all over your body. 
He told me that my body was laying down a type of fat as an inflammatory response to the food I was eating. He suggested a resource which told me how to get my brain working again, and it included a diet. This was the first time I ever stuck to a diet exactly as prescribed, and it worked. I lost weight, and the treatment he gave me helped to heal my brain so it could function properly. Then, as the diet prescribed, I started to reintroduce foods I had taken out, but I didn't pay attention to the harmful effects it told me to watch for. The weight came back on, and my moods and emotional health went south again. This was a classic case of the physical allergy being triggered, followed by mental obsession. During this period, my Ebby was at the bottom of her elevator shaft and continuing to dig a deeper hole with her foods. One night, we were both at a 12-step bonfire, and I saw her passing around a bowl of candy. I refused because at that time, I was in the flow of this diet, which was working, but I was really scared to see what was going on with her. The next day, she ended up going to the Virginia Beach Convention, and the recovery light was turned on for her. She came back and shared what had happened. It took me about five months to watch the change in her and for me to have my own bottoming out. That happened on May 17, 2016. This next phase is my recovery phase, phase, age 55 to present. I'm going to get a drink of water. Through her guidance and another fellow on this line, I got connected with a sponsor. I learned the set-aside prayer, and I began using that and still do. I not only received the gift of desperation, but I opened it. Inside was a big book and a recovered person willing to journey with me and light the path so that I could eventually recover and carry the message. I agreed to be led through the steps and do whatever I was told. I had listened irregularly to the vision meetings and had convinced myself this could not happen for me, but something felt different on this day. I was nervous about the time it was going to take as I was running my own business and that was very consuming. I used the set-aside prayer to help me get past the thoughts I was having. I got clarity on how out of proportion my thinking and subsequent actions were. The message I got was the amount of time I spent obsessing about, obtaining, eating, and being demoralized about food would now shift to this recovery process. My guide asked me to get a fresh copy of the big book, and she had me write certain things on the front pages and told me that I would be writing a lot on the pages of the chapters. The first thing she had me write was my beginning weight. I had not weighed myself in a very long time and was scared, but I did it. She said I would do this once a month and mark it down. Because of my pay and weigh experiences, I was concerned. But this time, it was different. She told me that while the weight was an important factor, it wasn't anything that I needed to keep worrying about, as once I was on a food plan, that God would take care of it for me. The impression I received was, the pay and weigh plans you have done will become a pray and weigh plan. God's got me covered. Next, my guide told me that I would need to consult a professional to get a food plan. This was a big area where I had to use the set-aside prayer because I was the know-it-all. What would this nutritionist have to tell me? 
Well, it was a great experience, and I learned a lot from her and was grateful for her expertise and kindness. She did not make me feel ashamed. Plus, it was a plan that felt doable with God's help. And she specialized in helping people detox from sugar and getting off of supplements and some medications. And so I felt like I would get good support from her. It only took about a week before the compulsion to eat my alcoholic foods was removed and the weight began to come off gradually. I'm currently at the top of the range for my goal weight and I am leaving it in God's hands if I am to go any lower. My physicals and blood work all show good numbers and I continue to be cancer free. Before we got started on the big book, my guide took time to get to know me and my history and we prayed often. Because of the lack of nurturing I experienced as a young child, she encouraged me to do something that I will be forever grateful for. She invited me to get a picture of myself as a young girl and to put it in a prominent place where I would see it when I got ready in the morning. When I saw it, I was to address the young girl and tell her what I would have wanted to hear. Some of the things I told her were, you were designed with the image of your creator in mind and you are beautiful. It was no accident that you were born and you have value. What you do and how you look does not define you. You are enough just how you are. You have what you need for today. And if you get frightened, it's okay to tell someone. <clears throat> These were things I had certainly thought about before, but was unable to have it sink into the depths of my heart and soul. For I knew that I knew without a doubt, nor was I ever able to be honest in knowing that I was disturbed and take it to someone else. There was too much shame in that. Someone told me that shame stands for should have already mastered everything. This exercise and discipline was part of the process for God to rewire my thoughts, feelings, and emotions. As we progressed through the steps, she encouraged me to listen to as many live recorded and special edition meetings as possible. And I did. Anytime I was not focused on other obligations, I had my earbuds in and I was listening. I would even go to sleep listening to the meetings. I figured that my subconscious was absorbing this and it couldn't hurt. I also started going to face-to-face -to -face OA meetings again and was blessed to be part of a new OA meeting that my Ebby started, which was based on the format of the vision meetings. One day in my prayer time, the question came up, could I actually be binging on this information and process, including food prep? And the response I got was, it was important for me to saturate myself with the unvarnished message of recovery and to hear it from many voices over and over and over. Because in my unrecovered state, I would be saturating myself by listening to the lies of the disease and engaging in the behaviors that kept me stuck. So in the beginning, I was listening to and or attending a minimum of five hours and up to 10 hours per day if it was a weekend. We cracked open the book in late May and I was through the steps in the fall. Toward the end of this process, my guide needed to go another direction and I immediately obtained a new sponsor. Both of them are amazing couples through which God has spoken to me 
and I would like to thank them. Now back to the title of this talk, Living a Prayed and Measured Life. As I embrace my food plan and learn how to weigh and measure my foods and prepare myself to eat, I learned I am both an under and over eater. My pattern was to basically starve myself all day and then make up for it at night. No wonder my sleep was so out of whack for so many years. So in addition to weighing and measuring my food, I learned to weigh and measure my time so that I could eat the food. In the beginning, this was probably the hardest thing I did. I was so freaked out about the time eating would take away from my work life. I was also nervous about the food plan and amount of food. I thought, there's no way I can eat all that food. It was a struggle for a while, but I persevered and asked for God's help each step of the way. What God showed me was to have blocks of time in which I could eat my meals. I am a very slow eater, so I pray and measure the times in which I eat. When I took step one, I faced the reality that I don't have the power of choice with respect to food. I have a twofold illness, as stated in the doctor's opinion. I prayed to become awake, aware, and alert, and that's what happened. I obtained a new consciousness about this. I conceded to my innermost self that I was a food addict, and I threw out several lifelong conceptions. I learned the difference between being powerless and helpless. I did only what I could do, not ingesting my addictive food. And God did what only God could do, remove the obsession. I prayed and God measured out a cup of honesty, which I drank in and was transformed. My step two process was one where the lies and delusions I harbored surfaced. I came face to face with my agnosticism within my belief system and about this disease. That is, I could not accept that the miracle could and would happen for me. Faithfully saying the set aside prayer on this step, I came to believe that I could be restored to sanity. The measure of hope I received from this step was having a healthy conception of my higher power restored and knowing that the victim consciousness <clears throat> I had displayed over my life was a facade. I had a responsibility to smash the delusion. My truth is that I am a wanted, cherished person who is safe and secure, was and is loved, and can extend love freely. That's what sanity looks like for me today. Making the decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God in step three was a beautiful experience. I was blessed to do this at the Fellowship of the Spirit Conference in Colorado in the summer of 2016 and was surrounded by OA fellows who continued to support my journey. This experience gave me a full measure of faith to move forward with enthusiasm. Working on step four was not laden with fear as I received just the right measure of courage Trusting in my higher power made it easy. The process of writing took a little over two weeks. During my fifth step, which I did over the phone, I had an unusual spiritual experience. <clears throat> As I discussed my deceased mother and stepdad, the flame on the candle I lit for the occasion connected with a glass vase that was close by and cracked it. I didn't see it happen but it made a loud, loud noise loud enough to startle me. The measure of solace I took from this incident is immense, as the glass vase was one my parents had left to me. I knew in my heart that not only was my higher power with me in the process, 
but a beautiful cloud of witnesses who have gone on to another dimension were with me too. This is something I would have missed had I not exercised a measure of integrity to put the food down and pick up the steps. The process of step six, seven, and eight was quick and happened as prescribed in the big book on the same day as my fifth step. I was anointed with a precise measure of willingness, humility, and responsibility. Step nine amends were completed in just over a month's time. Each experience bore a measure of restitution. And step 10 is the step that revolutionized my experience with the big book this time. The measure of perseverance to create and connect with my God squad is a huge blessing. I reach out when I experience restlessness, irritability, and discontentment now. And I'm so glad to say that the intervals keep growing in between those episodes. And to reciprocate and be there for the fellow who needs to offer a tent, it's a holy experience. Step 11 is a daily practice, and I'm part of a group that coordinates and rotates partners for the process and accountability. The measure of checking for spiritual fitness flows easily. I continue to experience the direct and inferred promises in the big book. And step 12, crown jewel of the steps. My previous effort sidestepped this one, and other spiritual pursuits were tainted with mixed motivations where my character defects ran the show. Now the service I do is from a prayed and measured heart. My aim is to be a vessel through which the measure, measure of grace and freedom I have experienced can be transmitted to others. And in doing that, I preserve it for myself. The symbolism of the word measure has taken on a whole new meaning for me in this recovery process. This next reference connects to the account I mentioned earlier where I had the vision of the light outside my window. And he dreamed, and behold, a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. This passage and the following scale and descriptors were given to me by the OA fellow who was my witness to my third step. And he just, he's watched my recovery, and he's discerned my ability to hear from my higher power was becoming more highly tuned, and my actions and responses were shifting. The 12, the 12 steps are the latter in that reference, in that passage to me, allowing the connection to be reset. The following describes the scale, kind of like a, me a measure in music using decibels, to describe one's perceptions and ability to hear and connect with God. As the decibel increases, so does one's ability to perceive and connect. The initial step in the scale is at 50 decibels, and someone here could be described as a helpless baby with the belief, I am defective, I am worthless, and I can't help it. The view of God is despising, vindictive, and condemning, and the feelings associated with this are worthless, defective, nothing to offer. The next step is 100 decibels. This is called the blaming bully, showing up with attitudes and actions such as, they will reject me, and I'll show them. The view of God here is uncaring, punishing, and denying. And the feelings associated with the blaming bully are grief, apathy, fear, and aloneness. Next, at 150 decibels, is the bossy helper saying to herself, 
it should be different, and I can do it better. And the view of God is vengeful, indifferent, permissive, non-existent. Feelings are anger, pride, victim ego, righteous indignation, and guilt. Next at 300 decibels is empowering ally who believes, I trust you will grow from this. And their view of God is inspiring, merciful, available, present. And the feelings are hopeful, no mistakes, acceptance, and trust. Then we have the respectful elder at 400 decibels where the belief is, I trust our path. And the views of God are forgiving, kind, protective, powerful. And the feelings that come with this are feelings of safety, protection, confidence, trust, being guided, positive, and boundaries. And then finally, at 500 decibels is the conscious kid who believes that everything I need is and will be provided. God works through me. They view God as love, one mind, grace, and peaceful. Feelings are connection, happy, capable, loved, protected, and prosperous. While I have been at every level of this scale, it's because of the steps that I float mostly between the last three today. Because of the psychic and personality change I experienced as the result of working these steps, I heard God's message that I am enough and have enough. I stopped striving around work and I now relax into my life in a way I never have. I let go of the fear and attachment to accomplishment and financial security. My focus is on personal relationships that suffered for all the time I spent eating and working. I was able to pick up my tent pegs and relocate from Colorado to Arizona where I can be of service to the Vision Fellowship and in my face-to-face meetings. I participate and provide service in my world outside this fellowship without being crippled by fear. And equally important, I do all of this happily as I experience fun, joy, and laughter, embracing new things and living life to the fullest. I am no longer one who is still suffering as I have been touched and transformed by the prayers uttered for me when I could not do so myself. I give my humble thanks to the giants on whose shoulders I stand and you all, the amazing Vision for You Fellowship of Overeaters Anonymous. I would like to close with Dr. Silkworth's advice. I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through and though perhaps he came to scoff, he may remain to pray. Thank you again, Leah, for the invitation to offer this service. I am humbled beyond measure and overflowing with gratitude. And with that, I pass. And thank you, Gina R., for beautifully detailing your profound personality change and transformation as the result of implementing our 12-step process of recovery. Thank you ever so much. Gina's contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question-answer segment. You can ask a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. Please give your first name, including the first letter of your last name. Good morning. This is Holly S. from Texas. Holly. One moment, please. Anyone else? 
Kathy K. Kathy K. Who did I miss after Kathy? Amanda R. Amanda, good morning. Anyone else at this time? Susan R. Sally B. from, oh, I'm sorry, Sally B. from Florida. That's a nice group. We've got Holly S., Kathy K., Amanda R., Susan R., and Sally B. So let's start with Holly, please. Hi, good morning, Tina. I really appreciate um, the things that you shared this morning. I really identify with so much. And my question today for you is, can you... Um, can you just enlarge a little bit more upon being a person of faith and being, I'm sorry, being in a community of believers and um, and just that that ebbing away of um, of just just watching that dissolve because of your disease. Um, that seems to be a little uh, a bit of a light bulb for me this morning, and, and I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Holly. Um, what I can say is, as I mentioned, I don't think anything is wasted in God's economy. And while um, it was very painful for me to go through that, I see now that it was absolutely necessary for me. There was no way I was going to get to the point I am today. and. I have um, maintained contact with some of the people um, that are that are there, and I, I hate to say this, but um, I've also had somebody in, who is a priest tell me that she wished what she watched happen to me could happen to almost everybody in her congregation because they're still masked. They're still they're still just gripped with the fear and these illusions um, that they're doing it. They're not really connecting. So it, it, um, it sounds weird, but I'm actually grateful for the experience um, as much as it hurt. Um, it's what I had to do um, in order for me to get to this point now. And I can tell you that I am a much more effective um, person inside my faith community and also not just inside my faith community but it gave me an appreciation and understanding for people who have different viewpoints than me and um, that I think is one of the the beauties of this particular um, divine book we've been given Um, I think my creator wants me to have that space for people so I hope that helps feel free to call me later if you want some more detailed information. Thank you. Thank you, Holly. Kathy Kay, your turn. Thank you, Leah, for your service. And um, thank you, Gina. Um, this is Kathy Kay from Boston. And I so appreciated your share today. I was glued to the phone um, listening and traveling with you through your history It related a little bit to the prior question. I'm wondering, um, you have such a deep spirituality now, and I have a better sense of how you traveled to it, but I wonder if you could talk about what you do today on a daily basis to nurture 
your relationship with God. Hi, Kathy. Thank you so much for um, the question. Today, my main practice is listening. Um, when the the person in Oklahoma that I, you know, asked her to do a crash course fourth and fifth step on me, with me, um, she she picked up that um, I was because of my intellect, and I've got a pretty big vocabulary. My prayer life was so out of proportion. I could say these long prayers that would just, you know, flow out of my ego. And um, so I really got the message even then that I needed to simplify it. And now just simply praying for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out is so simple. So I do find times all through the day to listen and to be awake, aware, and alert. And things come up all of the time. I see the ordinary in the holy in a lot of things. Some people might think it's ridiculous and think, you know, that I'm spiritualizing everything. Um, and on some level, it might be ridiculous. But you know what? The the promise, we, what do we say? You know, uh, is this a ridiculous proposition that the recovery we're promised in this big book? And we say, we think not. But I actually think this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous that I am going to bed wanting to wake up in the morning and feeling happy, joyous, and free about it. So I, there's a, um, uh, a term where you can just, you know, be present and aware of all of the things in your life. And so even simple things like washing the dishes, I'm listening, and I'm, I'm asking God to, you know, show me what I need to see and help me understand how everything I do during the day is connecting with what my purpose is, and that's to carry this message to the suffering compulsive eater. And um, but really, just stopping and listening and and meditating. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy K, for the question. Amanda R, star one to unmute. Hi, it's Amanda R from Maine, and I was wondering. Um, Sometimes I, I sponsor people that have that same body dysmorphic disorder, and and it's I, I'm wondering how if there's anything particular I can be doing uh, to address that or help them because it seems like they get to a healthy body weight and as defined by a nutritionist or doctor, and they still can't get rid of that that idea that they're disgustingly fat. And I I kind of I don't know what to do because I. I don't I don't experience that myself and but I want to help them but I I don't quite know if there's anything I can be should be doing besides just working the steps and insisting on sticking with that weight. Thank you Amanda R for the question. Um I have not myself gone through specific treatment like um some others on this line I know have um for being complete, I, even though I'm an under eater, I never got to anorexia and I never um, became bulimic either. I just didn't eat most of the day and then I would get it all in at the night. But I think for me, it really boiled down to um, being open to what um, my conception of my higher power was and, and how I determined I was here. Um, 
and, and what my purpose was. So if, if I have a core belief that I'm not supposed to be here and that I'm basically just, you know, cluttering up the world, I'm not going to have um, other positive and beautiful thoughts emanate from that one. So I had to undergo a psychic change where I got real clear that nothing could have stopped me from being born. I was supposed to be born, even though the odds were against it. And once I got that, I was able to, and the exercise that I mentioned that my sponsor had me do of just having the picture of myself, that really was a breakthrough experience. At first I thought it was kind of hokey, um, but I did. I told her I would do everything she told me to do, and so I did it. And it, it made a difference. And I've actually um, shared that experience with some people where I felt that it would be helpful. And I have heard back from them that it's also helpful. But I hope that is helpful to you. And thank you again for the question. Thank you, Amanda R. Susan R., your turn. Star one to unmute. Susan R. Star one to unmute. Okay, I'm here. I'm sorry. There we go. All righty. This is Susan R. from Island, and thank you so much for all of the sharing. Uh, my questions uh, first. I didn't catch the the first part of it uh, early on. You referred to pre something grace when you saw a light, and that, uh, and I just was wondering if you sure. could. Uh, yeah, it's the the word is prevenient, prevenient grace, P R E V E. N I E N T, and you can look it up. Okay. And uh, the other thing you mentioned uh, towards the end, uh, you were quoting some verses, uh, and he dreamed, and there was a ladder in that. Do you know those verses? I mean, what the verses are, book and yes, chapter? I do. Yes, I do. And um, I think it would be considered an outside issue. So anybody is okay. free to call or text me, and I'll be happy to share that with you. You okay. bet. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much, Susan R. Sally B., star one to unmute. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. It was very powerful. I have a question, um, <clears throat> and I don't know if it was what the last person was saying. You made a list of kind of um, stages, and I wondered where I could find that, or did you just come up with it yourself? <laughs> no. Um, the One of my OA fellows who was uh, one of the – uh, witnesses for my third step and who's been a, a, a signal part of my journey shared this with me. And again, it, it's an outside resource. So I, feel free to contact me afterward about oh, okay. that. And I'll, <clears throat> no, I wish I could. <clears throat> what I can tell you is because of these steps, 
I have experienced everything that you heard described in those steps. This is just a person who's put together and assembled it with words that help describe it in a way that some people find helpful. I found it very helpful. And um, it helps me to also know when I'm forgetting that I've recovered and that I have a recovered sane mind, I can um, look at, you know, what what is my view of God right now? <clears throat> if I'm getting back into the view of God where it's despising or vindictive or condemning, I know I'm not operating at that recovered frequency and I need to see what's going on and get back into my spiritual fitness. Okay, but I can call you and get it. Thank you. You bet. Thanks so much, Sally B. Want to let everybody know today's share ID is one zero seven seven four. That's ten thousand seven hundred and seventy four. And we'll take another group of folks who have questions for Tina R. Star one to unmute your first name. Hi. Sorry, Lay, I interrupted. Thank you. Your first name and first letter of your last name, please. We have Roz G. Who else? Laura G. Laura G. I'm sorry. Can you repeat today's number, please? Good morning, Marianne. One zero seven seven four. That's ten thousand seven hundred and seventy-four. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Who else has a question? This perhaps will be the final invitation for questions this morning. Jennifer H. Jennifer H. Wendy B. Wendy B. Tammy K. Tammy K. Is that correct? Tammy, yes. Okay. Nice group. Let's start with Roz G. Thank you. Star one ton mute, Roz. Okay. Okay, Leah. Sorry, I barged in there. <laughs> okay. Um, Tina, oh my gosh, your share was so moving. Thank you. And I identify a lot with listening to podcasts on health and nutrition. I take like two-mile walks with my dogs every day, and I set them up a lot. And I was wondering what you replaced those with. Music or let me know. What did you replace those podcasts with? And with that, I'll listen. Thank you. Hi, Roz, and thank you for your question. Well, um, I replaced it with uh, the Vision for You um, special editions and meetings for a really long time. And I'm not doing that so much um, now. I still I still listen to uh, an average of three to four hours of meetings a day. And, in addition, and then I also go to a face-to-face meeting a couple times a week. Um, I, music is something that um, God is unfolding for me right now. I have always been drawn to words and information, and I am very auditory, so I like listening to that. So, and interestingly, the music I like, I don't, I don't like lyrics in music. So when I listen to music, I usually listen to um, music that doesn't have lyrics. And that's when I really find that I can listen. Um, And that's where I hear the flow coming from my higher power is just 
with um, music. It could be anything from um, classical music to um, contemporary jazz or just anything that's instrumental. And um, I do I do like guided meditations as well, and um, uh, that and just kind of um, and then I also listen to what are called brain entrainment things, and that's one of the things that the doctor who helped me with my um, brain injury um, suggested. So again, I'd be happy to share any details on that um, in a personal call or text. Thank you. Thank you, Roz G, for the question. Of course, thank you, Gina, for respecting our program's boundaries. And Laura G, star one to unmute. Laura G, star one to unmute. All right, Laura G. Let's move on then to Jennifer H. Star one to unmute. Leah, am I here? I'm not. Hi, this is Jennifer. Jennifer, hold on. I think we got Laura G. Laura, is that you? (laughs) Yes. Okay, (laughs) welcome. Okay. Thank you so much for your service, Leah, and everybody for being here. I'm Laura. I'm Laura G. Compulsive Overeater in California. Um, I don't have words to express my gratitude for this, um, for you. Thank you for your message. Um, I also uh, have a lot of uh, similarities and uh, can't wait to hear your phone number. But um, <laughs> the question is, um, for myself, how do I, I don't question my intentions and my, uh, my person to God when I'm, when I'm meditating and, and asking God for guidance. But I question uh, the type of thinker I am and the type of person I am um, from others. You know, like I see their complexities and I see their, I try not to look at eyes anymore because I feel like I see so much disdain for the type of person I am in them. So if you can relate to it all about um, if you ever question like yourself um, to others, because I feel like I struggle with that and I'm always asking God, can you help me not feel so controlled by how others feel about me? If that makes any sense, I, I don't know, but. I tried to let, write it down. But yeah, let me see um, what what I what I am getting, and I think I can relate to. And if this isn't it, um, please add to the question. But um, this is a program where I can look people eye to eye. <laughs> I couldn't do that before um, because I was so um, crippled by knowing what I was seeing was me. So when I look at somebody and I, I have that, that sense of um, seeing something that I don't want to see, 
that's when I really need to lean into God and trust that God is revealing something. That person, person is a mirror for me at that moment. And, you know, when I was going through the presentation, you know, I zipped right through steps um, six, seven, and eight. Those go really fast in the book, but those are critical steps. I mean, I, I, this process was one for me to identify my character defects, and then I asked for God to humbly, I humbly ask him to remove them. So that means I've got to recognize when they're being shown to me because that's the process of removal. So when I have one of those situations, I may not do it like literally in the air, but I'm doing a fist bump going right on. God, you're continuing to work this out in me. And the fact that I can see whatever it is in them, again, remember, if I'm not the problem, there is no solution. So whatever I'm seeing in someone else, that's my problem. I have the opportunity and the responsibility at that point to recognize that and then work the 10th step on it, you know, and it, and I love how we have learned how to do it in this, in this um, fellowship. So I don't know if that answers your question. If not, feel free to elaborate more here. No, it, it, it beautifully answers my question. Thank you. I guess. Thank you. Thank you, Laura G. Jennifer H. Now your turn. <laughs> Thank you. Um, this is Jennifer H. from Virginia. And I, um, you brought up something that I'm getting ready to do a fifth step this afternoon, and I, I'm wondering if I should add some stuff about this in. But you talked about in your work career um, where your ego was fed by being given more and more responsibility and all of that and, and then feeling like a fraud. And um, I often have felt that throughout my life. I feel like I would get this good job and people expecting things of me. And I would feel like, well, if they only knew that I'm not really doing what they want or I'm not as good as they think I am. And and I'm in a job right now that while I was in the food, I felt very led to be in. And um, and I'm feeling the same way. So I just wanted to know how that has changed or if it has changed and how you have dealt with that. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer H. <clears throat> yes, um, this was... Uh, kind of relating back to the other question, why I had to be broken away from my um, faith fellowship. The same thing had to happen for me with the work. Um, because I had such an attachment to what I did and it giving me worth and value, um, it also continued to feed my addiction. So I got to the place in my recovery where I was hearing from God that I didn't need to be doing what I was doing, but I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do. And the answer I got was startling. The answer I got was, I don't want you doing anything. You need to fast from work. Just like you broke your addiction to food, you need to fast from work. And I can tell you that that sent me into some major prayer time. And that's where the tent steps and outreach to fellows was so necessary. Um, I am at a stage and age in my life where I'm not like perfectly at retirement age, but 
somewhere along the way, you know, I did make some good decisions and, you know, have some resources set aside where I'm not working right now and I'm living off of those resources. I don't know if it'll last forever or whatever forever means, but I know for now that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I have to get, I have to put this recovery first place. I have to put my ability to um, offer service to others first place. And then I can make a more sane decision about what I do to actually get paid. Um, I know not everybody is in that position, but I got that message and I was in my last job for probably about six months before I left. And so I actually got a freedom knowing, all right, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing today. This isn't going to be it forever. I'm going to be okay. I just don't know what okay looks like. And that's what I did. So I hope that helps you. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer H. Wendy B, star one to unmute. Hi, this is Wendy B. And Gina, thank you so much for your story. I just appreciate you so much. And um, I'm so glad I have this recorded so I can listen to it because you talk faster than I think and can write. <laughs> and my question is, um, I was wondering what your husband and daughter's response responses are to all these profound changes in you. And um, that's all. Thank you. And thank you, Wendy. I appreciate you too. Um, the response is there's a flow of love and mutual respect going back and forth each of our hearts and minds and souls right now. Um, my daughter is um, has actually told me that she, even though she's not one of us, I do think she does have um, some areas where another one of our sister fellowships might um, help around the emotions. And um, she's, she's open and told me she's open to hearing about how I did this and how I could share exactly what I've done with her and my husband. Um, again, we're kind of in this retirement place. And so I was really nervous about just being completely taken out of my work and that was the thing that that fueled and fed me um, and then being plopped down where we're just together with each other all the time and um, you know you hear it said that the steps are designed to keep us from committing suicide and the traditions are to keep us from committing homicide and that is what is happening I'm not, none of those are even on my radar at all but we are connecting and I almost feel like a newlywed because when we got married, we, we, we were both in the throes of this disease. And while it looked good to people from the outside, they just didn't know how, how pained I was. I mean, going back and looking at pictures of me on vacations and stuff, you can see the restlessness, the irritability, the discontent. I just could not be happy. And that's who I am today. I'm happy. And that's basically who my husband is. And um, for those of you who might be going to the OA convention or the OA birthday party, he's coming with me. He wants to be part of this. And um, so it's, 
It's revolutionized all my relationships, every one of them. Thanks, Wendy. Yes, thanks, Wendy B. And our final question for this morning comes from Tammy K. Hi, Tammy Kay, Grateful Recovering Compulsive Overeater. Um, Gina, thank you so much for your share. It was so powerful. You surely have been through a lot, and you have a message from our higher from a higher power that you're willing to share with all of us. My question is real brief. Um, you used the acronym SHAME, and I wanted to know what that stood for. Oh, sure. It stands for should, have, already, mastered everything and it is a lie (laughs) thank you Tammy Kay for the question thank you to everyone for their questions this morning and of course thank you Gina R for such a profound story of transformation this morning as a result of these 12 steps powerful testimony we thank you very much you're welcome. My pleasure. Let's close now from page 164 in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.